are listening to Bridge the Divide podcast with Erica and Heidi. We're a team composed of one black woman and one white woman, coming from different backgrounds, but united in friendship. We provide a forum for discussion and action around racial repair, reconstruction, and eventually reconciliation. We are passionate advocates for treating all humanity with love and respect. We contend that hosting conversations gives us an opportunity to develop relationships and engage with our community to create joint, achievable, and long-lasting solutions together. We invite everyone to come to the table for these podcast discussions, but know that the expressed opinions and perspectives of our guests are their own. Good to have you back. Um, We have a guest today, Pastor Kelly, who is going to talk with us about race and immigration. How are you doing, Kelly? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Erica. (laughs) Welcome. Hi, Heidi. So I think we should start off by just having you introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about you. Sure. So um, right now I'm the pastor at two congregations in Ozaki County. I am the pastor at Christ the King Lutheran in Port Washington and also Living Hope Lutheran in Sockville. They're both congregations in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the ELCA, which is one of several kinds of Lutherans in the United States. Um, But before I came to Wisconsin in 2017, I spent about two years before that traveling the nation and the world. Um, researching the Christian intersection of faith and immigration and refugees around the world. Mm. I was the recipient from my seminary. That was the Luther Seminary Graduate Preaching Fellow for 2016. And what that meant is that I had a fellowship where I didn't have to write a doctoral paper or like take classes. I just got to travel and talk to people and learn wow, stuff. Sounds good. It's like the best fellowship. It's almost in the like whole field world. research where you just yeah. go interview. Yeah. So like I get to do this instead of writing a paper to get graded. I get to talk to people about the stuff I learned. So during that year, I traveled from Fargo, North Dakota, down to Orlando, Florida, to El Paso, Texas. I traveled out to Los Angeles, Chicago. And so I got to do a lot of stuff with um, immigration and refugees here in the United States. And then I got to travel all over Europe, Eastern Africa, and a little bit in Central America as well, and really visit refugee camps, refugee centers, immigration clinics, talk to folks all over the world, and get a broader perspective on the global refugee and immigration crisis. Here in the United States, we hear a lot about what happens on our southern border. We don't talk about immigration as an international Mm -hmm. concern. Mm -hmm. And then as a pastor, I really am interested in this connection between immigration and faith because Mm -hmm. um, my particular denomination is an immigrant faith. Immigrants brought it to the United States. It didn't grow here. Hmm. It started with immigrants. So I am who I am as an American because of immigration, and I am who I am as a Lutheran because of immigration. So I'm the product of immigration in two ways. And so to me, it's really important that our local churches understand the immigration connection. Hmm. See? I think we got the right person. Uh, I think Pastor Kelly is the person to talk to us. I have about 20 questions. (laughs) (laughs) So, So you're... Luther, where you went, they 
Luther College. Is that where you went? No, I went to Luther Seminary Luther in St. Paul, Minnesota. And oh, okay. um, private donors fund this fellowship okay. because they want small town pastors to have had global experience. That they is feel that beautiful. in the 21st century, um, even though I'm in two super small congregations, they think there's still a really big value of bringing the whole world back to that. Absolutely. And for me, actually, most Lutherans don't live in Wisconsin. Secret is oh. <laughs> most Lutherans actually live in Africa. So when people think about Lutherans, they think about people that look like me with German heritage or Norwegian heritage. Most Lutherans today are African. They don't look like me at all. So the fact that we have these racial stereotypes connected to a particular faith is part of being Midwestern American. Mm -hmm. It's Uh not part of being Lutheran. Most Lutherans around the world don't look like me. Yeah, I, so, I would I would admit that I've had that stereotype. Right, right. Most people do. Mm-hmm. White, yeah. German, Western. There's more Lutherans in Tanzania than in the United States. And there's three or four other countries in Africa that also have loads of Lutherans. Hmm. So um, India has one of the highest groups of Lutherans worldwide. Yeah, you told us before we went on air yeah. that it's the whitest of all congregations. So the ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, by definition, is just in the United States of America. Oh, that's So why, okay. that group is the whitest denomination in the United States, despite the fact that our partners worldwide are very rarely European anymore. Isn't that an interesting racial that, contrast? That is. <laughs> so the average Lutheran around the world is not white, okay. but the average Lutheran in the United States is. And so part of my interest in immigration is how do we connect that racial divide in a way that actually brings us together as people of faith around the world? Because we we claim in our songs and in our theology and in our prayers that we're all equal children of God. Right. But it's harder to live that out when so much of this is happening, which is why I'm such a fan of what Erica's doing with Bridge the Divide, because that's exactly what um, I, I feel that I've been helped to call to called to do as well. It's helped to bridge this divide between white people of faith and people of faith around the world mm-hmm. who are all sorts of different, beautiful mm-hmm. kinds of people. So, yeah, we're, we're right. We're with you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And amen. Right. <laughs> right. We've talked a little bit in the past about how just I've traveled a lot mm-hmm. in the world, but also moved around a lot in the U S and, and feel like, that perspective has really been important to my life and faith. Um, and when that's how you grow up or and generations of your family before you have grown up that way, you think that that is it's the right way. It's the only way. And you don't even know that there's another way. Sure. Or yeah, totally. And, you know, a lot of us, as we get older and we meet people different than us and we get new perspectives, it really challenges some of the things we learned when mm-hmm. we were little, right? So one challenge that people of faith, in my opinion, especially folks of Euro- European descent who tend to be Protestant in the United States, see other people in church that looks just like them. Mm-hmm. And then they start to realize that if God really loves everyone all around the world, how come everyone in my church looks like me? <laughs> yeah. And it's actually a real crisis of faith for yeah. them. So if yeah. we as a church are not talking about this, I feel like folks are going to end up not just giving up on the way church is currently doing it, which is part of America's race problem, mm-hmm. but actually give up on faith completely. God never asked us to do that, right? So if we as a church don't address the original sin in our country of racism, then we're going to perpetuate bigger problems, right? Mm-hmm. If we're not talking about it. Yeah. That's that, my... Not only is it not neutral, it's negative for, for sure. the church. 
For sure. Yeah. 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 So that's why. And so my particular stance as a descendant of European immigrants, my particular perspective where I feel I can speak into is the immigration situation. Mm -hmm. I don't want to speak for someone else with a different story to tell. I want to raise up folks who have their own stories to tell Mm -hmm. of being a person of faith and a person of color. Right. But I'm a person of faith and I'm a descendant of immigrants. So I raise up my story of immigration and then connect it to other modern immigrants who look different than I do but have almost the same story as my ancestors Mm. and that helps to bridge the divide between the way that Americans see things we almost always see things through a racial lens Mm. in the United States which most immigrants don't because they're seeing things differently from where they come from so when we can when when I can talk to other um, European descendants of immigrants Mm. about immigration and really challenge them I feel like it's one step towards bridging a racial divide in our communities. Hmm. And and talking about Ozaki County, I'm yeah. not sure how long you've been in Ozaki County. Only 2 years. Okay. Okay. Tell so what story can you tell yeah. in that 2 years of immigration and Sure. in Ozaki County. Yeah. yeah, so I think one of the great things about being in Greater Milwaukee is we have all these festivals in mm-hmm. Milwaukee, right? Mm-hmm. And folks, even in this area, will go up to Belgium. So to me, Belgium's a country. Turns out it's a tiny <laughs> it little is, right. town, like just right. north of 40. And it's not New Berlin because I got in trouble when I moved here. It's New Berlin. Right, so, right, you know. for sure, for sure. So especially with all the beer gardens and other things that happen in Ozaki County, even if you're not German, I think if you're light-skinned, you just pretend you're German uh, here. You like St. Patrick's Day was not a big deal in all these areas, but like Oktoberfest starts next week, folks. <laughs> I'm like, that's not October. So there's definitely this like group dynamic connected to German immigration, even though it was only about a third of the people that came to this area. Mm-hmm. But we talk about it as if it was every white person who showed up here came from Germany. Hmm. And so we've sort of imposed that story on a bunch of folks. Um, and then folks who look a certain way are able to use that story, whether it's theirs or not. Hmm. And then we've kind of imposed it on everyone in the mm-hmm. county as if it's the right story to have. Well, you might have you might have come here from a different place. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Um, and so I find that interesting about Ozaki County, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I think we have to go to a break. But afterwards, I want to hear more about... When you were traveling the country, what you saw and learned. And we have a lot more questions. (laughs) When we return. Welcome back from the break. We are here with Pastor Anderson. Or that doesn't sound right. No, Pastor it's Pastor Kelly. Kelly. Yeah. I don't Most even know people... she had a last name for so long. Her name is Pastor Kelly. Right? <laughs> yeah, that sounded too formal. It the kids call me Miss Pastor Kelly. Oh, that's cute. <laughs> so whatever works. Well, anyways, you're here. I'm here. In the right. studio with us. Yes. Yep. Talking immigration, yeah. race, yeah. other things, faith. Yeah. Um, we wanted to circle back to the time you spent mm-hmm. uh, traveling around the U.S. Yeah. and abroad yeah. and kind of get some of your big takeaways from that. Yeah. Um, misconceptions you ran into, sure. um, hopeful things, stories. Yeah. 
Yeah. Whatever you want to tell us. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the first places I visited on my worldwide tour was Denmark. And I don't think most of us consider Denmark an interesting place to learn about immigration. Turns out, so Denmark is an officially Lutheran country. The pastors there are paid by tax dollars. They are government workers in Denmark. Yep. Wow. So when the Danish prime minister makes a rule about immigration, the pastors are supposed to help enforce it. Now imagine how interesting that is for some of the Danish pastors who now have... Um, immigrants and refugees in refugee detention centers in their neighborhood because they're government employees, just like our mayors. They have a geographic area and all the people that live in that area are officially members of their church and they're supposed to take care of them. So plenty of Danish pastors took the side of these people weren't baptized Lutheran, so I don't need to care about them. Other pastors took the side of, they live in my town, that's my job. Mm -hmm. So I got to meet a Lutheran pastor who took it upon himself to go and visit some of these refugee detention centers in his community and meet the people there, just like he would go and do hospital visits or visit kids at school, right? He walked in one day and met a gentleman from Iran who was reading a Bible in Greek. And this Danish guy showed up and started talking to him in English (laughs) about the Christian faith and this Jewish rabbi named Jesus who was a Christian. And to me, now at that point, my American little brain is just exploding. <laughs> right. Because, right. like, no American, we're supposed to be the nation of immigrants, but no American can imagine that story. Mm, right? right. And um, that Iranian gentleman had actually been kicked out of his country because in Iran it's illegal to be a baptized Christian. So when he converted, his wife divorced him, took all of his property, um, brought him up on formal charges, took full custody of their son. And so at that point, he is a criminal on the run. And he became then a refugee in Europe. He's seeking refuge there. Um, And it became a complicated case because if you run a background check on him in Iran, he's a criminal. Mm -hmm. His crime was for faith. And so Europe is now facing something that America had as some of our earliest um, European colonists were folks fleeing religious persecution. Now Europe has to look at that. Mm -hmm. And so now they're looking at this these folks showing up saying, we want to be in Denmark because here we can express our religion freely. And I couldn't in my former country. Isn't that like Mm. such an interesting story? It is. Right. So that was super interesting. Um, Then here in the United States, I actually got to go to an immigration court in Los Angeles. And what's happening right now is because we haven't added enough judges in the last 10 years to actually handle the caseload, judges are sometimes being asked to decide on hundreds of cases a day. 140 cases in a day is not uncommon Mm -hmm. in the Los Angeles Immigration Court. And if you miss your court deadline, you could potentially be immediately served a deportation order because they don't have any time to follow up Mm -hmm. with you. We were in there for several hours, saw an immigration judge try to be as fair and consistent as possible. But how do you do that with 140 cases in a day, right? This woman came forward. This woman was in active labor in the courtroom. She had a friend drive her for her court appointment instead of the hospital because if she didn't show up for her court appointment, 
right? She hadn't been able to get a hold of her attorney to represent her. And she knew that if she didn't show up for a court appointment, she would be deported potentially while she was in the hospital Mm. giving birth. And so she literally is in active labor in the courtroom Mm. and thankfully had a female judge who went off record and said, could somebody please get this lady a lawyer (laughs) and get her a ride to the hospital? And then we can move on with our day. But I just sat there thinking, this is a gray area. Everything became a gray area to me, right? Mm -hmm. This Iranian man who's a criminal Mm -hmm. and now a refugee, well, but I think his crime is okay. So mm-hmm. that automatically right. moves him to this awkward gray area, right? This woman who's in active labor, she made her court appearance. Does that mean that she wants to follow the laws, right? All of a sudden it became this super gray area. And so one of the interesting things to me about modern immigration is that most of us want to make it a black and white issue. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's like almost all gray. Mm-hmm. And so then it becomes, you know, how on earth do you deal with this in, in an appropriate moral legal way mm-hmm. when every single case seems to be individualistic. Yeah, that's the the word that kept coming into my head as you were talking is nuance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like with every story, you probably saw all these different nuances yes. that only stories can give you. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're there, you're observing and you see that like you said it just it changes it from we got to keep immigrants out or we should let them all in. It's mm-hmm. it's it's complex. Well, if you have an assembly line and you've got to hurry up and run people through and get to the next one, how do you have the time, even if you have the heart, to try to we, hear all of those nuances and hear everybody's right. story? Right. And then how do you pick which ones are right. getting through and which ones go right? I, I don't know. How you- For sure. And immigration law is so complicated at this point that even lawyers and judges involved in it are reporting struggles in managing the nuance in the time limits they've been given. They mm-hmm. want to give the cases an appropriate amount of time to manage it well. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to do that with 140 cases a day. I don't mm-hmm. know how you would. Mm-mm. You can't do it effectively, right? What changed the most for you? What misconception or previously held belief yeah. changed after your your travels. Sure. So I think like most Americans, right, I still had some stereotypes and some biases about immigration, right? Mm-hmm. So I grew up in uh, metropolitan Detroit. In that area, the um, a lot of our immigrants and refugees are actually from the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the biggest mosque in the Americas was close to my home. And so I knew um, something about refugee resettlement post-war. My husband taught students who who came after the first war or after the second war or after Yemen, right? And so I knew something about that. Um, I assumed a lot about immigration from the southern border. But I think mm-hmm. what I didn't really realize is that the nuance expands to folks from all over the world. Mm-hmm. Um, is that... Only about half of the immigrants coming into our country are from Latin America. Um, We actually have about 25% of undocumented immigrants in the United States are Asian. Hmm. They arrived on a plane. Yeah, you don't hear about that. (laughs) You don't hear about that. Right. So they came through, and most people actually enter the United States not on our southern border. They enter through one of the 250 airports or seaports into the country. Mm -hmm. So the southern border is not where the majority of immigration work is being done. 
but it's where the majority of our news is happening. Right. Sure. <laughs> right. right. Mm-hmm. So when I go to Fargo, North Dakota, what's happening up there is a significant amount of refugee resettlement of folks from Somalia, Ethiopia, and from um, Asia. Up there wow. in, in Fargo. Yeah, huh. for sure. <laughs> right? Is, my grandparents live in North Dakota. I, um, I can't yeah. imagine if, that they're going to like it. But right. Well, it's very controversial <laughs> right. there. Because right. in the last 10 yeah. years, one of Fargo's high school has gone from 99% white to one-third non-native English speakers as graduates in 10 years. That's a wow. huge change. That's a huge change. But then in some towns in Iowa, small towns that were otherwise going to die have reported that refugee resettlement has actually brought their towns back. Mm. This is happening in Detroit where I'm from. Mm-hmm. Detroit has these big old houses downtown right. that are designed for families of 10. Well, we don't have families of 10 anymore. Right. You bring in some Syrian refugees, they are so happy to be in that house. Mm-hmm. They don't mind walking a mile to a grocery store. They're so excited there's a grocery store within a mile. Mm-hmm. They're so excited to be in this city. They're going to rebuild it and take care of their home and mm-hmm. mow their lawn and send their kids to school. The same things that the original immigrants, the Polish immigrants in that town did. The same thing that the Italian immigrants in that town did. So the new immigrants to the town are revitalizing parts of the community just like the European immigrants that came before them have done. That's what I'm hearing through the lines or between the lines is that the immigrants' stories and the people you've met, they're not unlike us. No. They're families. they, They want to have freedom. Yeah. They want to take care of their kids. For sure. They're not other. Mm-hmm. They're mm-hmm. not. It um, Things have really changed since, um, since 1965, and I think we can talk about that. But one of the primary groups that I really saw um, when I worked in immigration clinics, one of the primary groups of undocumented people were actually housewives. Huh. Their husbands have a legal work permit to be here. Mm. But a temporary legal work permit still makes it very difficult, even though family members can enter legally without a permanent green card with only a temporary work permit. It's very difficult for him to then pay for, apply and get permission for his wife to join him. So after some and from some countries, the wait is up to 12 years. So a lot of these women showed up. They're not working illegally. They're not doing anything illegally. They're just living with their husband and their kids. And they just don't have any special papers to do that. Right. But from their perspective, they don't need a special paper to love their husband and kids. Right. So we're going to go uh, to a break. And after the break, talk about the, the similarities of that story to our, our suburbia. Yeah, for sure. We'll be right back. We are back with Pastor Kelly, and we've heard about some of her um, adventures around the world, in the U.S., and some of the stories that you were talking about Mm -hmm. seem like they translate perfectly to the same kind of stories that you would hear in uh, the suburbs, the exurbs of Milwaukee right here. Is that a word? It is. Exurbs. Exurbs. Like, because you've got the urban... The oh, ex-herbs. Su- yeah, like, the suburb, the exurb, and then the rural. Oh. No. No, it's, it's like the... A- yeah, it's like a location. That's See? a new word for me. Okay. Look okay. at that. Thank Ooh. you. All kinds. This is what we do. It brings divide. Yep. We we learn things. 
so but but even some of those stories that we think could right. could be the same kind of story that you would hear of a, a wife and a mother in suburbia that needs something or or needs to have something for her children. So shouldn't we, I don't know, feel some some empathy? Shouldn't we feel some kinship with that story? Yeah, I think so. So one of the great upsides of American history has been that throughout history, um, moms often have moved things, have moved the political landscape in some really dynamic ways. So um, when I was little, my mom would tell me that she loved us so much, she would do anything to protect us, anything. And I truly believe it. I, she would go to jail. Mm-hmm. She would die for us. She would fight off bears. You know, mm-hmm. mom yes, stuff. Lift cars. Normal mom stuff. Yeah, no problem. Right? Yep. And what my parents also taught me was that most people are fairly similar. So I grew up with this concept that if my mom was willing to do those amazing things for me, other moms are pretty likely to want to do those amazing things for their kids. Mm -hmm. This realization, mom to mom, I think is what has helped to move us beyond some other stereotypes. So I think when a mom looks in the eyeballs of another mom whose kid is hurting, they don't see a skin color. Mm -hmm. They don't see a religion. They don't see a language. They see a mom who is a struggling, Mm -hmm. right? And we've heard stories about this across the millennia. And so it happened in the Holocaust when moms sent their babies to England to survive, right? It happened and on slave plantations when moms tried to get their kids into a safer place, right? It happens now when um, moms are bringing kids from Central America to the United States, sending them to live with cousins or aunties or someone to take care of them. It happened with... um, other moms in our community who are victims of domestic violence and Mm -hmm. are trying to get their kids out of that situation, right? Moms consistently do this. Mm -hmm. And as soon as moms see the other people as moms, things change. Mm -hmm. So in the civil rights movement, when white moms saw that these other kids, those other moms also wanted their kids to go to school, that's when the conversation changed. When Mm -hmm. it's my kid can't sit next to your kid, that's one conversation. But when it's like, I care enough about my kid and I bet you also care about yours, Mm -hmm. the conversation changes. So I think right now what I'm seeing is a lot of parents, moms and dads across the nation are starting to say, the way we're treating children in this immigration Mm -hmm. debate is completely Mm -hmm. inappropriate. Mm -hmm. When we do, when ICE does a raid on the first day of school and does not notify either the school or the foster care agencies in town so that hundreds of children are abandoned on the street that day, that's inappropriate, right? So when we are okay with taking nursing children of three months old away from their parents and putting them in a prison cell, that's inappropriate. So at some point, parents are realizing we've crossed the line, right? right? We And once you cross the line, then you have to start talking about where should the line have been in the first place? Yep. If it's not okay to treat a kid like this, where do we really want that line to be? <laughs> I, I'm thinking about though, when, if my mom wasn't home, if I expected my mom to be home and she wasn't home, she for whatever reason, she was late at the grocery store. She was working late. It was the worst thing ever. Like, yeah. where, where is mom? Right. What's happening now? And right. my children, even in the, in the land of phones and texting, if I'm not home when they're expecting me to be home, <laughs> it's, hey, where are you? Are you? Cu-? I'm out. I'm a grown up. It's fine. But, but I think that that's that's a good way to to build that empathy. How would your children feel if something like that happened to you when right. you were? So for a lot of folks, you know, when we talk about bridging the divide, 
we may or may not have opinions on immigration policy, but without being an expert, a judge or a lawyer or a politician, we're probably never going to understand all the nuances. But in what ways can we call for some dignity and humanity in the process so that a mother who's in active labor doesn't have to go to court, so that a child doesn't have to come home to no parents, so that parents know where their children are in this process, so that people who are here can request their spouses to live with them politely Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. they don't have to break the law to join them. Mm -hmm. How can we infuse more dignity into the situation so that despite our differences, we can bridge some divides, I think. Um, And I think that's an, an easier way for a lot of folks to approach immigration reform because we're not lawyers. But we are our right. parents and spouses and friends and neighbors, and we know how to treat people we care about. Right. We know how to treat humans like humans. Right. So we can do that for sure. I, I do think that some of the news coverage on the the kids being taken away from their parents and being in detention centers and having no health care or food right. or love, like I think that that is given perspective to the story because Mm -hmm. wow if we're willing to do this what what else are we missing Mm -hmm. and one of the unfortunate things that that brings up is this particular administration has specifically chosen to remove children from parents Mm -hmm. but for many years now we've been very willing to remove parents from children We've been very okay with deporting parents and arresting parents and taking them away from their children for a long time, much like we did with, unfortunately, with when we did with African-American children, we took mm-hmm. them from their parents often mm-hmm. um, in slavery times. We took Native American children from their parents. Yep. We took Japanese children from their parents. Right. So uh, uh, over and over again, it's once we start doing those sorts of horrible things to children that we start to rethink the whole process. Right. Right. So unfortunately, our current deportation system leaves many, many American citizen children without their parents. Mm -hmm. Because right now, right, you as an adult might have broken immigration law, but if your child hasn't, we can't deport American children. So if you gave birth to children here in the States, one parent is a legal resident, the other parent is undocumented. Right now, we ship the undocumented person out and leave the rest here, we've split up a family. Mm -hmm. And that's not the best solution Mm -hmm. (laughs) for Mm -hmm. anyone. Mm -hmm. Um, We have listeners of all faiths, but since you're a Christian pastor, I'd like to hear your perspective. Um, Any challenges you have for Christians or the church in in general around immigration and how their faith might um, impact the way they view it or, Mm -hmm. you know, act sure that's that's what i love to talk about <laughs> happy to do now that. we're getting started yeah for sure <laughs> so you're waiting for that question yeah i was totally excited about that one one of the great things that i like to mention is um the bible is a story of people on the move our modern terms like immigrant refugee documented citizen those words are um, were all created post-world war ii when we had to figure out in our new modern world how to communicate that so all of those are words that you and i know but they're not bible time words Mm -hmm. so the bible um uses words like foreigner stranger Mm -hmm. alien Mm -hmm. neighbor and those happen from beginning to end and in fact, in the Old Testament, the the first for us it's called the Old Testament. It's the Hebrew Scriptures, actually. In the Hebrew Scriptures, which um, God gave to Moses, 
over and over and over again, God says to take care of widows, orphans, mm-hmm. and foreigners. Mm-hmm. Those three are almost always stated together. It's a core part of the Jewish faith. Mm-hmm. And so for millennia, Jewish folks have been doing this pretty well, but we often <laughs> like to start reading in the middle of the book. So we sometimes forget, right? Just calling it like right, it is. Right. We sometimes forget, and we may sometimes take care of widows and orphans. We do great things with foster care. Yeah. We help single moms. We try and help families. If your church is currently doing something to help those two groups, is your church also doing something to help the strangers and the foreigners? Mm. It doesn't say just the widows whose husbands were mean to them. It doesn't say just the single moms who had kids after they got married. Mm -hmm. It doesn't say just the orphans who are cute. It doesn't say just the strangers who have papers. Mm -hmm. It says the widows, orphans, and strangers among you because you were once foreigners in Egypt and God rescued you. And so the story of the Bible is about people who don't have paperwork and God rescuing them anyway. Mm. So then to put it back to Christian faith, most modern Protestants really focus our faith on um, some of the last books of the Bible written by the Apostle Paul. Mm -hmm. And he was writing to a really diverse group. The first group of Christians were super diverse. They were all nationalities, slaves, slave owners, former slaves. They were all colors, genders. I mean, nobody knew why these people were hanging out. (laughs) There was no good reason why these folks were in a room together 2,000 years ago. Would it still look weird now, right? And he consistently is writing to them and he says for you are no longer strangers or aliens but you are citizens with the saints in heaven the the theology that most of us christians base our faith on is that our baptism our christianity our faith and identity as a child of god is more important than anything else including my race including my nationality including my passport or citizenship status. And if we actually believe that, then I am a sibling with the undocumented immigrant Mm. in my town Mm -hmm. as much as I am with a woman in a refugee camp in Kenya I may never meet, as much as I am with a child in a detention center on the border, as much as I am with that Iranian refugee who's stuck in Denmark. Mm -hmm. Those are my siblings. Once I really believe that... I can no longer stand by a church that's okay with discriminating against people Mm -hmm. because of their skin or because of their immigration status. So for me, this is the modern civil rights movement, Mm -hmm. is as people of faith, are we going to sit down and say, God made us equal, or are we going to keep using human standards of dividing folks? Mm -hmm. Or are we going to let our faith bridge this divide in a way that's healthy? So that to me is the modern challenge. Preach. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So for for the listeners who are, this is just not going to be enough because our producer isn't going to let us have a four-hour show, but you know. Um, Maybe. Maybe we could. Yeah. Uh, Where else could they get some information? Where could they, you talked about where you have, um, where you're pastoring, but where else can they get more information about this and grow and learn more? Sure. So um, I would definitely recommend um, checking out a few different organizations the, um, I know I'm biased, but the Lutheran Immigration <laughs> and Refugee Services, which is called LIRS, they're the largest immigrant and refugee advocacy organization in the United States. Hmm. If you're in Washington talking about immigration or refugees, you cannot get past the Lutherans. They're mm-hmm. going to be in your face <laughs> the whole stinking time. So because Washington, D.C. Lutherans are not nearly as nice as our Wisconsin well, Right, ones. we do have our Midwest. I'm just you know, saying, you gotta, yeah, yeah. there's no casseroles in Washington, D.C. <laughs> <laughs> so we just got to do what we got to do. 
So LIRS.org has a lot of information, including Mythbusters about refugees and immigration, great opportunities to donate, which I think is really helpful. Um, and then uh, Raices, R-A-I-C-E-S, Raices does a lot of work with Latino immigration. Um, if you happen to um, have any listeners outside the Milwaukee area, the Methodist Church Nationwide supports a group called Justice for Our Neighbors, JFON. There's currently none of those in Milwaukee, and I really think we need some. So mm. if there's any Methodists out there who want to work with me on this, <laughs> there you go. there's loads of those in um, Chicago area, and mm. they provide immigrant rights options. And then I'll add some other groups in the notes right. for the podcast, yep. Yep. Um, because a lot of folks want to know, like, what can I do? Where can I go? Mm-hmm. Right here in Milwaukee, um, Voces de la Frontera has a Spanish name, so unfortunately it keeps reinforcing the concept that all of our immigrants mm. are Latino. Mm-hmm. But here in Milwaukee, there really is is a huge Latino population. But just know that Voces also works with Hmong immigrants, which is big here in Milwaukee, and other persons uh, from all over the world. So Voces does work with that. If you want to get your feet on the ground locally, that's their best group. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Right. And and like you said, we'll get these, we'll get some links in the show notes. Any additional information that we can gather, we'll put them in the show notes. Yeah. Mm. Wow. I think we're ready. We're riled up, ready yeah. to go. Yeah, I am. I love to come and talk to folks. So I will do presentations. I've done them for schools, community groups, churches, your book club. I've got a whole list of yes. books you want your book club to mm. read. We could do that um, because there's some pretty great other resources out there. Books and videos you can get right here at the Cedarburg Public Library that you mm. could talk about. So mm-hmm. that is a great option <laughs> because I think for a lot of us who can't travel around the world, we travel by watching films. Yes. We travel by reading books. Absolutely. Right? Mm-hmm. We travel by talking to other people. That's exactly what your library does. So we've got them right here. I can Look give you that. some ideas. Look at Jeff I think over she's there. a He's keeper. <laughs> I think she's a He's keeper. So happy. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you so very you. much, Pastor Kelly. We I'm appreciate so it. And um I don't know. We're gonna have to just continue the conversation. Yeah, as I think many so. Times Part two coming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I think so. All awesome. right. Thank you very much, and you all have a good one. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We welcome your feedback, suggestions, and any program ideas. Spoken word artist propaganda states we need to consider the waters we swim in. Maybe it's not toxic to me, but it's toxic to my neighbor. And if it's toxic to my neighbor, it's probably toxic to me too. Let's breathe better water. Contact us on our website at www.bridgethedivide.life. You can email us info at bridgethedivide.life or reach us on social media. Facebook is Bridge the Divide Community and on Instagram, it's Bridge the Divide Podcast.